The world is at a pivotal moment. Geopolitical clashes have spawned an intense race for technology leadership. Industries are being reshaped. Globalization is being reimagined. I'm Andrew Schwartz. And I'm Kirti Gupta. We're here to break down how geopolitics and technology are impacting our economy, our security, and and our our daily daily lives. lives. This This is is Geotech Geotech Wars. Hello, everyone. Welcome back. Today, we are joined by Professor Chris Miller. You might have heard of him. He is the author of the New York Times bestsellers called The Chip War. Chris is an associate professor of international history at the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy at Tufts University, where his research focuses on technology, geopolitics, economics, international affairs, and Russia. In fact, Chris, I think it's really interesting that you, as an economic historian, has been an expert in the USSR and Russia, (laughs) and you found your way into chips through that work. And now I think you're sort of a leading figure in this space, you know, very well researched, very well read book. You've been writing, speaking everywhere internationally because of the importance of this topic. And quite frankly, an incredibly well-written, riveting book on the topic. (laughs) So welcome. We are so happy to have you. And I think a natural place for us to start is maybe ask you the question on why chips are so important today, semiconductor chips, and you wrote this book, why did you write it? And how did Taiwan become such a dominant player in in this industry? Well, well, thanks for thanks for having me to start, and it's great to be on this podcast. CSAS has been such a great source of research and was cited uh, a fair number of times in the footnotes of my book. So I've learned a lot from all of the scholars at CSAS. I decided to to write this book, as you say, partly out of my interest in Russian and Soviet history. Um, I was actually planning at the outset to write a history of the arms race during the Cold War, and I wanted to understand why was it that the Soviet Union was capable of producing the key military innovations of the early Cold War, nuclear weapons, long-range missile systems, space systems, but unable to keep up with the revolution in military affairs that emerged at the end of the Cold War with precision systems, for example. And that got me studying the way that computers had been applied to warfare. And I was doing that research around 2015, 2016, uh, just as uh, US-China technological tensions were uh, heating up. Companies like ZTE, then Huawei were facing new restrictions. And I came to realize that semiconductors were actually key to both the history I was trying to explain, but also uh, seemed to be quite key to understanding US-China dynamics at the time. And I guess the the third facet that I, I realized intersected with this story was when I learned that China spends as much money each year importing semiconductors as it spends importing oil, which was a, a data point that shocked me. I had to download the ComTrade data three times to make sure I was reading it right, because that wasn't how I was taught to think about globalization. But it turns out that uh, you can't understand the Cold War, you can't understand globalization, you can't understand China-US relations today without putting semiconductors at the center of your analysis. So that's why I wrote the book. So Chris, I want to jump in. You know, The United States has been a player in this, one of the key players in this. Why did the U.S. become the leader in chip R&D, but not manufacturing? It seems like an incomplete strategy. Well, I think there's there's two reasons why. One is that as the technology has gotten more complex over the last half century, and today there's really nothing humans create that's more complex than an advanced semiconductor. 
the number of companies that participate in the manufacturing of just a single chip has grown and grown and grown because certain companies specialize in the unique chemicals that are involved. Others specialize in the machine tools, others in the design software. And so as more and more companies have gotten involved in the production of any single chip, the likelihood that all of those companies will be in a single country has gone from pretty likely because the US in the 1960s and 70s, it could do everything on its own to impossible. Today, there's not a single country that is self-sufficient in producing advanced semiconductors, nor do I think there will ever be again. So the US isn't unique. It's not really surprising that the US can't do it all uh, on its own. But I think the US has fallen more behind in manufacturing than one might expect for a couple of reasons. First is that unlike many other governments, the US has been much less generous in supporting investment in semiconductor manufacturing. And there's actually been great studies that have been done. The OECD did a very interesting study several years ago that found uh, that certain US chip firms received more money in government subsidies from foreign governments than they did from the US government. And so in that context, it's easy to understand why that manufacturing increasingly moved offshore. That seems astonishing. I feel like you felt when you learned about China importing as many chips as oil, that more foreign direct investment in chips than U.S. investment. More government support. Yeah, that's right. And you know, I think for, for a long time during the 90s, during the 2000s, there was a sense that a government didn't need to think about the industry. And it's easy to understand why people thought that because the industry was dominated by U.S. firms and was doing very well, very profitable. And second, there was a sense that actually the tech that really mattered was search engines, was social media, was software firms, rather than the hardware that made all of it possible. And for a long time, I think people just ignored the fact that the reason we call Silicon Valley Silicon Valley is that the entire tech sector rests on a foundation of silicon chips. Kirti? Yeah, so I've spent 20 years in the semiconductor industry as an engineer first and as the chief economist of Qualcomm until recently. And I just want to present an industry perspective for us to consider, you know, in addition to what Chris is sharing, how this industry evolved to a point where it became so incredibly globalized and the U.S. found its role as the leader in R&D and design and tools while this industry became incredibly diversified and globalized. I mean, like you said, Chris, every time a customer touches a chip, Andrew, for example, reaching your phone or your car, on average, it has traveled 46 countries. It's crossed so many borders in its lifetime before it reaches your hand because of the production, which is incredibly globalized and complex. And it happened because, I mean, partly because of Adam Smith's truism, right? We all want to focus on what our competitive advantage is, and we have to outsource some of those other things. So the way this industry happened to organize itself through the 1970s and the 2000s is, when you know the Fairchilds and the Intels of the world in the early days realized that they need to do more scalable production, they started looking for options overseas that were better, more efficient, and they started focusing more on the higher end R&D and design and able to push the manufacturing and production out. Now, you know, while we need to bring some of the manufacturing back on shore, we have to remember that the leadership in the design is the critical leadership that we need to be able to maintain because that's where it takes 10 plus, 15 plus years for us to reach the next edge, cutting edge generation of future technology. This is an important point you make, Kirti. And along those lines, 
the United States wants to retain its supremacy in terms of R&D, but what would it take for the U.S. to regain manufacturing leadership? And is the CHIPS Act passed by the Biden administration enough? I think there are two aspects of, of manufacturing leadership. One is, can you produce the most cutting edge ships? And there's different types of cutting edge ships. So that's not a simple question to ask. But the second is, do you have the capacity that you need to withstand crises? And those are somewhat different things. I think that the CHIPS Act is going to make a difference when it comes to manufacturing capacity on the margin. There's already is a major increase in investment and construction of new chip making facilities. We already see even before the first CHIPS Act dollars have actually been spent. But the reality is that there is so much reliance on chips that are made offshore. We're not going to be self-sufficient in chips, even in the not not the most cutting edge chips. Uh, we're still going to be reliant on trade with partners. When it comes to the cutting edge, the challenge is that there are just a couple of companies in the world capable of producing cutting edge chips. And so you can't talk about cutting edge in the abstract. There are three companies that matter when it comes to producing cutting edge logic chips. And so asking, will the U.S. have cutting edge capacity is asking which of these three companies will be at the cutting edge in five or 10 years and what share of their capacity will be in the U.S. And nobody knows with any confidence which of these companies will be leading the race. But the U.S. wants to have more investment from all of them to give it a bit more likelihood of having a greater share of cutting edge capacity in the U.S. Well, and part of the key point of President Biden's CHIPS Act, of course, is to you know, stay ahead of China. And what do you think about that? Is China ultimately going to catch up anyway? How long can we keep them at bay? How important is it that we keep them at bay? Well, I, I think what you find when you look at China is on the one hand, the government's been spending, the Chinese government's been spending an enormous amount of money, especially since 2014 when the Chinese government identified ships as a key strategic priority, what they call a core technology. You know, ballpark, the Chinese government's spending roughly one ships act per year and has been for the past decade supporting a ship industry, the national level, provincial, and local government funds. So huge amounts of money going in. And they've made a lot of progress. Uh, but they also remain really far behind in a number of key parts of the supply chain. And I think people always ask me, when will China catch up? Is it next year, the year after, or at some point towards the end of the decade? But actually, the trend in the chip industry has been that everyone's been falling behind the leaders. When it comes to advanced manufacturing, everyone's fallen behind the leadership of TSMC. When it comes to lithography, everyone's falling behind ASML. Across the supply chain, there's been concentration where just one or two players in the world have come to dominate the advanced technology in that segment of the supply chain. So the, the trend is actually of falling behind the cutting edge. And so if you assume Chinese firms are just normal firms. Your assumption should be actually that they'll fall behind, not that they'll catch up. Yeah. And on that, you know, the right now, Chinese, the largest foundry, SMIC, is several generations behind on the node, semiconductor node technology that they work on. So I think it's a really fair assumption that that would remain the case for over 10 years. It takes a enormous amount of know-how, skill set, and large CapEx investments to be able to create these foundries that, frankly, you know, like Chris said, only three companies in the world have managed to lead and sustain. So Chris, why don't you name those three companies? And I want to go back to Andrew's question on what would it take for us to, uh, for the US to catch up and if the CHIPS Act is enough? So when it comes to leading edge uh, logic chips, it's TSMC, the Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Company, Samsung and Intel uh, are the, the three leaders. 
uh, of logic chips. And, and maybe it's worth flagging that they have different business models. Or at least right. times in the past, they had different business models with Intel producing chips only for itself, in-house production. They're beginning to open an ARM that's going to produce chips for outsiders, but that's in its early stages. TSMC, by contrast, only produces chips for outsiders. It doesn't design any chips. And Samsung does a, a mix of, of both. Right. And remember that TSMC is based in Taiwan, Samsung in South Korea. Intel is obviously a U.S. company. But in terms of market share for the or the volume of these chips that is being produced, TSMC is a standout leader by a very large margin. So the question, Andrew, whether the CHIPS Act will be enough for us to bring some manufacturing back into the United States, I just wanted to unpack that a little bit with you, Chris. You know, now let, let me put it this way. <laughs> the CHIPS Act is $52 billion over X number of years, right? And out of which I think $13 billion is earmarked for long-term R&D and et cetera, and 39 is marked for manufacturing support. And that's over a number of years. Now you compare that to the operating cost of TSMC in any given year, it's over $100 billion. So it's a small amount. It's a start, but for it to scale, we really need a public-private partnership. And that brings me to the second point of a public-private partnership and for it to be sustainable and work. The TSMC model is very well suited because it is not an integrated model like Intel's. In other words, the design companies outsource their manufacturing to TSMC, and therefore they have an incentive to invest in TSMC for its manufacturing, knowing that they will have the leadership in the design. Not so in the case of Intel, because it is an IDM, what we call an integrated design plus manufacturing firm. So it is competing with the design firms as their competitor, as well as serving them as the customers of, of Intel. So there is a tension there as long as Intel maintains its integrated business model. Yeah, I think I think that's right. I, I, I think you actually see Intel recognizing that tension, which is why they've they've launched their new foundry business line and have been trying to set it up as a, a standalone business unit. But we'll, of course, have to see how that that process develops. I think from the perspective of the U.S. government, I think uh, investing in foundry capacity also uh, makes a lot of sense. If you invest in a single firm, you get the output of that single firm increased. But if you invest in a foundry that is a, a chip maker that produces chips for many different customers, then you get capacity that can be shifted around uh, as market dynamics change in response. And so that I think is one of the reasons why we're going to see uh, lots of requests for Chips Act support from companies that either already operate this type of flexible foundry business model or companies that are in the process of setting one up. Chris, I, I want to ask you about decoupling with China. Um, you've written last spring in The Economist about de-risking and our strategy towards China. What are your thoughts about the U.S. decoupling with China? Well, you know, decoupling is, is sort of a, a political slogan rather than an analytical concept. And now it's been replaced with a new political slogan, de-risking, which is meant to sound, I think, lower cost, but refers to some of the same trends. I, I think if you want to be analytical, we've got to look at a specific types of economic exchanges, specific investment flows, specific trade flows, specific technology transfers. There's no doubt when you look at the U.S.-China relationship, and not just the U.S.-China, but also the, the West-China relationship, that investment into China has slumped. It's not just U.S. firms, it's Japanese, Korean firms as well. And this is particularly happening in the tech and electronics industry. There's no doubt that 
almost every company in the electronics uh, industry is trying to diversify its production and assembly base. Companies looking at Vietnam, India, elsewhere to uh, manufacture, whether it's computers or servers or smartphones. But there's also no doubt that U.S.-China trade remains very large. And for U.S. firms, China remains a, a major market. And so I think if when we look at political leaders talking about decoupling, you can find evidence of decoupling and the opposite, depending on where you look in the economic relationship. But for us thinking about it, we need to think about what is the type of decoupling we want and don't want. The reality is we probably want certain things to be decoupled and other things not to be decoupled. For example, I think we probably want U.S. firms selling goods into China for as long as possible. There's no downside to me of Nike selling as many uh, sneakers into China far into the future. Big upside, actually. Huge upside. Exactly. Exactly. But we probably don't want companies that are selling advanced technology to be transferring all of their advanced technology to China if it's something that China doesn't currently have access to. So that's the balance that needs to be struck. And we've seen over the last decade different uh, efforts to, to strike that balance. Do you think we currently have about the right balance? You know, I, I think there's been a trend over the past six years, seven years towards more restrictions, more restrictions on investment, more restrictions on tech transfer. And I think that's reflective of the fact that a decade ago, we did not have the right balance. I think if you look in different parts of the relationship, you can make arguments for a, a tighter or looser policy stance. But I think that the trend of tightening up relative to where we were a decade ago uh, is the right one. Kirti. Yeah. So, you know, I, I would like to echo this approach of caution. So. As I think we've discussed in our previous episodes, semiconductor chips, and for some of the reasons Chris has shared, have become a central point of these geopolitical discussions and the U.S. relationships with China. You know, first of all, as Chris pointed out, you know, many people use this analogy, not a perfect one, but semiconductor is the new oil, except that it keeps changing and it keeps advancing. So there is a, a potential for us to keep our adversaries at bay and in a decade behind us uh, technologically, if we are able to use some of these export controls in a sensible way. On the other hand, you know, I'd like to remind you of the statistics. I mean, Chris, you mentioned that our trade with China is very high volume, right? It, it's uh, And you're a USSR expert and you know this, that our current trade relationship with China is orders of magnitude higher than anything we ever had with the USSR in terms of economic ties. So if our economic ties are hurt, you know, we, we are all hurting ourselves and our own industry and our own economy. And even applying to semiconductors specifically, of all the revenue that is generated by U.S. semiconductor firms, a third of that sale terminates in China, meaning those products are sold and used by Chinese customers. Three-fourths of that revenue is passed through China. So three-fourths of the revenue that is generated and by U.S. semiconductor firms is generated by selling chips to products around the world that go into China, are integrated into products like, you know, smartphones and cell phones and watches and whatever, and then sold in the rest of the world. So we have to be really careful as we think about the export controls and entity listing to really tailor to these very high-end, cutting-edge, critical technologies, I think many of us call it the small pond high fence model, while maintaining economic ties that, that are able to create the global economy that we've all enjoyed over the last 50, 60, 70 years. I think this is a critical distinction that the share of chips that are sent to China and consumed by Chinese consumers versus the share of chips that are sent to China 
put in a smartphone and then exported to an end consumer in Europe or Japan or the US. And I think if you look at the ways that electronics assembly right now is shifting, it suggests that this dynamic will shift too. So right now, almost all the world's smartphones are made in China. The vast majority of computers are assembled in China and servers, a large share of them are assembled in China. So all of the chips or almost all of the chips that uh, go in iPhones are sent to China, assembled in in China and then sent to consumers around the world. But what you find right now is all of the companies that manage assembly processes, whether it's uh, HP with PCs or server companies or even Apple, though slowly, they're all beginning to try to shift some of their assembly outside of China. And so what this is going to do over the next decade, it's going to reduce the share of chips that are going to China for assembly and then being re-exported. And so we're going to see uh, China play a, a smaller role here. And increasingly, it'll be the case that the chips that are going into China are chips that are intended for end customers in China. And that will, I think, have the effect of somewhat reducing China's leverage over foreign chip firms. Because right now, for a lot of US chip design firms, the vast majority of the chips they make are going into China and then they're being re-exported. But China's got a ton of leverage over them. Whereas as assembly dynamics change, that leverage will decline somewhat. I think the other key dynamic is, is China's desire to force companies to buy Chinese chips. And one of the things that we we haven't seen as much of in the chip industry as we have in most of the rest of the Chinese economy is demands or requirements that Chinese firms buy local. So in high-speed rail, for example, Chinese firms had to buy local from the beginning. That's why you had very rapid domestic production of, in China. But right now, if you look in a, a Chinese-made smartphone assembled in China, almost all of the chips will have been imported from Japan, from Taiwan, from Korea. And I think that's going to start to change. You know, The reality is that China only imports things that it can't produce domestically. And increasingly, we're seeing evidence that it's even willing to take higher prices or lower quality to have the ability to force companies to buy domestically. And so I think very slowly, but I I think it's happening, U.S. and foreign chip firms are realizing that their end markets in China are shrinking because Chinese policymakers are increasingly forcing Chinese companies to buy domestic alternatives. So just wanted to add to that, you know, I think it's a really important point that you just made, Chris, that companies are now beginning to shift their operations, embracing this idea of reimagining globalization, moving their, you know, some of their manufacturing activity out of China and diversifying into other regions, you know, India, Vietnam, Malaysia, so on. And that trend is happening, but it takes time. It takes a few years. So my question is, as the United States is thinking about its strategy for export controls, and entity listing of Chinese companies to put these barriers of trade between what we can or cannot sell to China. How careful do we we ought to be knowing that this timing is, it's a slow timing, right? It's a slow burn where companies are naturally diversifying versus if we create rules that are so stringent and we keep pushing China, let's say against a corner, eventually we can face some retaliation. And we have already faced it. You know, we have seen, you know, Chinese government limited the sale of Micron's products into China. And uh, to your point, that's the stated desire that will continue to happen. China doesn't want to buy U.S. technology. And that can accelerate tension. How concerned should we be about that? Or how concerned are you about that? Yeah, I, th- I think that's that's a key balance that's got to be struck. I mean, uh, on the one hand, on the, on the time horizon question, I think I would argue that we've seen the U.S. government signaling to companies now for almost a decade, since 2015 or 2016, that trade patterns have to shift, that tech transfer patterns have to shift. And I think it took a long time for tech CEOs really to get the message. 
for a long time, I think Silicon Valley thought, oh, well, this is just about Trump or this is just about tariffs. And it wasn't really, I don't think, for many of them until the export controls that were announced last year on AI chips and chip manufacturing equipment that they really realized this is bipartisan is going to happen for a long time and their businesses have to shift as a result of it. So I, I think I think a, a point of criticism I would have of tech CEOs is that they were really late in reading the newspaper headlines and they had longer to shift or they would have had longer to shift had they realized faster what was going on. But I think you're, you're absolutely right that you know assembly of electronic devices is an expensive thing to change rapidly, which is why it's going to change over half a decade, if not longer. I, I think on, on the question of Chinese retaliation, on the one hand, we've certainly seen China retaliate against a number of different firms. On the other hand, you, know, you could argue actually that China's retaliation has been quite limited. And I think in some ways that's that's the surprise. So that's the puzzle. Why has Chinese retaliation been so limited? And I think it's been limited because China doesn't have that many great options for retaliation. It has some, but almost all of its options involve significant costs for China as well as for the US. And so the balance that China has to strike is how much does it want to hurt the US, and indeed it does want to hurt the US, relative to how much pain is it willing to suffer for itself. And this is particularly tricky at a time when foreign companies are already looking to leave China. They're already looking to move their investment to Vietnam, to India. And the more China retaliates, the more it incentivizes exactly that type of movement. And so that's put China in a really uh, difficult uh, position. Uh, no retaliation for China is cost-free. Except China's aspirations vis-a-vis -vis Taiwan. Well, I, I don't think that would be cost-free, but I agree it would be costly for us. <laughs> but my question is, you know, I, I guess th there are ways to unpack this. I think I, I completely agree with you right now. You know, Chinese firms don't have great options to procure the semiconductor ships that are necessary from inside China for these cutting edge products. But they do have an option to procure those chips from companies that are not US companies. So we could see retaliation in that way, shifting, getting those chips, not from US companies, but from other foreign competitors, especially those from Taiwan. Yeah, that, that's right. And, and certainly if you look at the Chinese move against Micron, which makes memory chips, and memory chips are are somewhat interchangeable. So there's a number of Korean firms that make memory chips as well. If you don't have Microns, you can buy someone else's in, in most cases. And so it's not a surprise that China chose to retaliate in a segment of the industry where there are alternatives available. I think for US policymakers, this forces them to A, try to work more closely with allies to make sure you don't have shifting of purchases from U.S. companies to uh, other companies. We've heard the G7 talk about coordinated efforts to limit Chinese economic coercion. I think this is right now just talk. There's not enough action on this front, um, but it shows that policymakers recognize this issue. I, I think next to that, you know, the, the other, I think, really striking facet of the last couple of years is the extent to which it's shown that separate from the U.S. and China, and we often talk about this as a bilateral uh, relationship, the Japanese, the Koreans, certain countries in Europe have also taken a much tougher stance on China. And I think if you asked almost all people in Washington just a couple of years ago, what's the likelihood of getting a trilateral deal between Japan, the Netherlands, and the U.S. restricting chip making equipment to China? Most people would have said totally impossible. And it had happened over the past year with really not that much diplomatic capital being spent on the U.S. side because views in Japan and views in the Netherlands on China had shifted so drastically. And that's the other part of the that relationship between the U.S. And, and allies that has really changed uh, over the past couple of years. Yeah, I wanted to add also that just like 
you know, memory chips for Micron, this other segment of technology, like cutting edge, let's take cutting edge technology, like 5G and 6G communications, right? Um, there are very few companies that have leadership in producing those chips, you know, and there's MediaTek in Taiwan, there's Samsung in Korea, and as, you know, distant second and thirds. And as, you know, like Chris said, you know, China's appetite for lower quality, higher prices grows. There's always potential for retaliation also in these cutting edge high tech technologies where the products that are, you know, frankly used as baseline for communications, a communication fabric of the world everywhere can have product that is not a U.S. product. So that's something I think about and, and think about how do we maintain an edge. Well, I, I wanted to ask you all to, to wrap up our podcast about the recent executive order by the Biden administration, which expanded the entity listing for foreign direct investment into China. First, I want to go to Chris. What are your thoughts? And then, Kirti, we'll give you the last word. Well, I, th- I think you've seen for some time concern among U.S. policymakers that uh, first off, uh, U.S. capital is going into Chinese tech startups, helping them fund themselves in the early stages. And indeed, if you look at a lot of the most successful uh, Chinese tech firms, U.S. capital played a role at the, their founding. Um, but I think second, more important is the question of uh, transfers of expertise. There, there's actually a lot of capital uh, sloshing around Chinese financial markets, but that U.S. VCs have a very long track record of knowing how to build businesses. And I think that was what really concerned U.S. policymakers is that the, the top U.S. VCs were helping build Chinese firms. And if they're just building e-commerce companies or helping to deliver food more rapidly around Shanghai, that's probably not that big of a consideration. But if they're building chip companies or uh, investing in quantum computing, U.S. policymakers didn't want to see that happening. And that's why you've seen these new restrictions that I, I think have actually been really carefully written to avoid having major economic impact, but are going to have a significant impact on uh, investment into the targeted sectors. And semiconductors are a key example uh, of that. And I, I think this uh, shows the extent to which the U.S. government is really going to try to identify every single mechanism by which U.S. expertise uh, U.S. technology, U.S. know-how is being transferred uh, to the Chinese ship industry and close it off. Uh, and, and maybe just one final point. What's striking to me is actually the extent to which it took some time. The VC industry has now come to realize that um, the business as usual with the Chinese ship industry is just no longer uh, viable. And you've seen a, a really substantial reduction in not only U.S., but foreign edge capital flows uh, into China as a result. Kirti, I'd love your thoughts on the recent executive order. You know, I just like to go back to the theme that Chris and I have touched on before, which is the importance of caution. And as we think about limiting and restricting our trade and uh, foreign direct investment into China, while that's necessary for some of the most cutting edge technologies, we have to think about both the impact and the unintended consequences. In terms of impact, you know, I think verdict is still not out on whether us cornering China, backing into a corner is going to make them retaliate further or not, given that the economy is already weaker. And second, what that means to us, how that affects our industries, how that affects our semiconductor industry in particular. So I think that Chris is right. The recent executive order has been written in a way that tries to limit the restrictions. And we need to continue to hold on those, you know, small pool, high fence approach uh, that we've been taking so far. Chris, I want to thank you very much for coming on Geotech Wars with us today. 
It's a real pleasure. Well, thank you for having me. Thank you for tuning into Geotech Wars. You can listen to more episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to great content. Don't forget to rate and review us. Until next time.